ever wondered what God looks like? I know I have. I know as far back as I can remember, I've wondered. But I've never been satisfied with where it got me. I've thought of God as an old man, a nice grandfather figure, but one who's a tad fragile, not someone who can defend me when I'm threatened. I feared him as a strict principal, an ever-present policeman who was always nagging on me and just waiting to thumb me as the guy who did it. I once considered him to be my good luck charm. All I had to do was call on him and hopefully he would come serve me and give me what I want, my own personal genie in a bottle. I even pictured him as an absent landlord, someone I have to pay rent to, and frankly, probably someone who has a lot better things to do than bother with me. And I've imagined him other ways, but all my images of God are just too small. All of them, that is, except one. God has told us in the Bible that He is spirit. It does not detail His physical appearance. And in fact, it reminds us that no man has seen God at any time. But the Bible also tells us something else. It tells us that God became flesh. It tells us that Jesus makes it known what God is like. That He is the visible image of the invisible God. That in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It tells us that Jesus himself said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. If you know me, you know my Father. The Bible also says that Jesus' body was not stately in form or appearance that we should be attracted to him. But his person, wow, talk about attractive. When you talk about the person of Jesus, you don't find yourself talking about his strong points. You marvel that he is the exact representation of the nature of God. Every good attribute and characteristic of perfection was seen in Jesus. Want to know what God looks like? Then take a look at Jesus. See how he handles the oppressed. Watch how Jesus pursues those that are lost. Notice how he deals tenderly with friends. Be amazed at how he loves and offers forgiveness to his enemies. Look at how he stands strong in the face of death. Notice how he sacrifices himself for the good of others. Watch how he respects those in authority and yet how he bows to no one. Observe how he handles hypocrites, betrayal, and deceit. Look at his response to dead religion, burdensome traditions, and the arrogance of men. And yet, notice how children run to him. Watch him serve his world and lead his men. Always loving, never failing, continually forgiving. Want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. I have this really cool program on my computer called Photo Booth. And with an eyesight camera and about an hour of spare time, you can take some really funny pictures because you take your picture, but you can choose what distortion you want on it. And, and it really makes some really cool distorted images of, uh, of people. Take, take a look. Maybe if you didn't know those people, you'd think, well, those don't look distorted. Maybe people do look like that, but probably not. But if you didn't know any of those people, it would take seeing the real thing to really know what they look like, and we've got that too. So when you see the real image, what those people really look like, you see even more how distorted. But when you look at the the real image, the true image, the one that was taken correctly, you see even more how distorted the other images are. We're in week four of a series called Image is Everything. And I've been talking about how our image of God shapes our life, how our image of God determines a lot. Our image of God determines how we view ourselves, 
Our image of God determines how we see others, and our image of God determines how we live our life. And up until now, I've been talking about some distorted images that we've accumulated through the years, some ways that people see God that are destructive, and how to get those images of him out of our life. The first week I talked about God as an all-you-can-eat buffet, just going down the line saying, I'll take that. Oh, I don't want any of that. I'll take some of this. I don't want any of that. Just picking and choosing the parts of God that we like or dislike. Second week, our youth pastor, Darren Hull, talked about God as a father. And for some people, that's not a good image because your father wasn't a good father. So saying God, father, sometimes can be a negative in some people's life. And then last week, I talked about God as the talent show judge and how destructive it is to see God as a God who just sits up there somewhere just giving us good marks and bad marks, just judging us based on our performance and not on who we are. Those are destructive images of God. And when you take those destructive images that we've all talked through over the last few weeks and you compare them to what I'm going to start talking about today, you'll see even more how destructive those images are. Because today I'm going to shift gears. And if you really listen and you really think about the image of God I'm going to talk about today, it can change your life. So whatever destructive image you've had of God, whatever one you've struggled with, today is going to be a shift to talk about some constructive images of God. The recorded story of mankind begins in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, it's easy to figure out. That's the beginning because it says in the beginning. In the beginning, God created And it goes on and tells the story how God created the earth and then comes up to how God created mankind. And ever since God breathed life into mankind's nostrils, humans have sought to understand him. Humans have sought to figure God out. Humans have sought to have an image of God that's productive in their lives. But because we're human, because we have flaws, because none of us are absolutely perfect, we mess up. And if you read human history, you can see time after time after time. If you read biblical history, you can see time after time after time, mankind messing up and blowing it when it comes to our image of God. And God tried and tried and tried to get humans to get the correct image, and we just couldn't get it. So God, at that point, has got to be thinking, oh my goodness, they're they're never going to get this. I've got to do something drastic, and that drastic thing was he decided to become one of us. He decided to become a man, and then Jesus Christ came to earth. And one of Jesus' primary reasons for coming to earth was to reveal the heart of God to mankind, to erase all of those bad images that mankind had of God and replace them with constructive images. So many times you would hear Jesus in his teaching say things like, you've heard that it was said, but now I say. What Jesus is saying is, you've heard that it was said, God is this way, but let me tell you, God is really this way. 
You've heard that it was said, God acts like this. That's wrong. God really acts like this. And he taught and taught and taught for three years, trying to show people the heart of God. Jesus said this in John 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God looks like? Look at the teachings of Jesus. You want to know how God interacts with humans? Look at the teachings of Jesus. Later on in the New Testament, in a book called Hebrews, it says that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. That is the way to get the right image of God is to start looking at the way Jesus revealed God to people. The constructive image we're talking about is in John chapter 15. John 15 is still the night before the Passover, which was the Jewish day to remember the exodus out of Egypt when God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, was trapped in Egyptian slavery, and they finally got freed through God working through Moses, their leader. And so they got together and they celebrated Passover. So it's the night before Passover. And Jesus has got all of his disciples his inner circle, the people he's counting on to take his word to the world in this place called an upper room, just the upstairs of a house. And some amazing things happen in that upper room. We talk about it almost every week when we have communion. They shared a meal together. And he said, when you do this, remember me. Jesus washed their feet in the upper room. And Jesus looked around and looked into their eyes and he said, one of you one of you around this table is going to betray me. A lot happened in the upper room with his disciples who already believed he was the Messiah. They knew the time was coming to an end. They knew he was near his death. Jesus knew he was near his death. And he said, I'm not going to be with you much longer. So he takes them out of the room to give them some more teaching. So wouldn't you think the things he talks about when he says, look, I'm not going to be with you much longer, it sounds kind of urgent. So whatever he talks about after that must be pretty important. Whatever teaching he gives them, it's him thinking, okay, whatever these guys don't get while I'm here on earth, they're going to have to get it here in the next little bit because I'm getting ready to head out of here and they're going to be down here without me physically with them. So they head out of this upper room. 11 of his disciples, and they head out into the street, and they go out into the countryside towards this place called the Mount of Olives, where Jesus was going to pray, where ultimately he would be arrested and led to his execution. But on the way there, John chapter 15 reads as if Jesus just bent down and picked up something and said this, I'm the vine, and my father is the gardener. I could see they're just maybe walking through a vineyard and he stops and he says, hey, y'all need to know I'm, I'm the vine and my father's the gardener. And he goes on to say, and you are the branches. He goes on to explain to them an image of God through something that they were familiar with, something they understood. They would have immediately knew what Jesus was talking about when he started talking about vines and gardens and branches and fruit. Because gardening then was a little bit different than gardening now. Gardening then, the gardener, the vine dresser as he was called, would go through the vineyard and the vineyards were low to the ground and he would carefully inspect each vine, each branch. And if there was a branch that needed 
pruning, needed the dead part cut out. He would cut that out and he would throw it away, put it into a big pile to be burned so the rest of the plant could produce the fruit that he desired. They would have immediately thought of that farming then. Farming today is just quick and fast and get it shipped halfway around the world. That's farming today. But then they would have immediately understood what a vine dresser was, what a gardener was, and what his role was in the vineyard. And that's an image he wants us to understand today. When I think of vines, when I first think vine, I think of being a boy growing up in the hills and these big long vines that grew down out of trees. We called them grape vines. There was never a grape or flower or anything on them, but they grew down out of trees and you know, you'd play Tarzan, you'd cut them off and you'd swing out over the creek, the, the valley or the cliff or whatever it was. That's what I think when I think of vines, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about these low to the ground vineyards in that area of the world. And in this simple story, when it sounds as if Jesus picked up one of the vines and said, I'm the vine. My father's the gardener. You're the branches. In this story, he reveals a constructive image of God. So our first constructive image that we're going to talk about is God as the green-thumbed gardener. God as the gardener who doesn't just dabble in it on the weekends, who doesn't just try to grow something, but he can't. But Jesus is trying to give us this picture of a gardener that walks in his garden and cares for each plant and gets down and touches it and gets down and gets involved with each plant as if it were the only one. He's trying to give them and he's trying to give us a new image of God as a gardener who will do whatever it takes for our lives to produce fruit, for our lives to be productive, for our lives to be spiritually connected with him the vine. He's trying to get across to them in his final message, the heart of God. So what should our response be to this gardener who walks through our lives and tends to each one of us as if we're the only one? What kind of a response do you think a gardener, a God like that would expect? Jesus explains it all in John chapter 15. First response he expects is growth. He expects us to grow, produce fruit, to grow. Like many of you, we have this board, this long board in our house where we have measured the growth of our children, maybe use a doorpost or whatever, but we have this board that can just be attached to the wall and we've measured our girls since they were about this high and then there's marks at this height and there's marks at this height right up until the height they are right now. And if you look at the bottom line, from six or seven years ago, and you look at the top line from now, there's a big difference. And that difference, that thing in the middle represents growth. It represents the growth of two little girls that went through a lot of skin knees, a lot of trips to the doctor, a lot of mistakes, maybe some pain because of rebelliousness. But that gap represents growth that was most of the time a lot of fun Sometimes not very fun at all, but it represents growth. Growing takes time. They didn't just get up one day and all of a sudden go, whoa, three feet? Man, what did you eat for dinner? That's not how it works. Growth takes time, and sometimes growth can be painful. 
The disciples have to be looking at Jesus at this point thinking, what's next? What's he going to say next? What's he going to do next? But Jesus is trying to teach them who they are the same way he's trying to teach us. And he's trying to put their life in perspective. So God's desire, the gardener's desire is that we grow or as Jesus put it, bear fruit. So what's fruit? Fruit is that sweet stuff in life. When it feels like life's really working, you know what I'm talking about? When it feels like everything's just hitting on all cylinders and things are going great and you feel really connected with God and really connected with others and you just have a spiritual life that's like, yes, this is what it's all about. That's fruit. Galatians 5 verse 22 describes the sweet stuff of life like this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But before any of those things can be in our life, before any grape can pop out on a vine, before any apple can pop out on a tree and be truly fruitful, before it blossoms, before our life blossoms, something has to happen called pruning. And in a literal garden, somebody has to go through and cut off the branches that shouldn't be there. And it's important to cut off the branches that aren't producing fruit because if you don't, in a garden, it's going to suck all the nutrients out. And then the good branches that could produce fruit do not produce as good a fruit because the nutrients are going into these branches that aren't producing fruit. So the master gardener walks through and he clips off the branches that are not producing fruit. He puts them in a pile and he burns them. In your life today, what is sucking the nutrients, the spiritual nutrients out of your life? What is making you feel disconnected? What's making you feel like things just aren't clicking? What's making you feel like something is wrong, things aren't working right? Maybe it's because there are things in your life that shouldn't be there that are sucking out the energy and the spiritual nutrients that should be over in a part of your life that's helping you grow in your gifts, grow in your fruitfulness, grow in your contentment, but there's this other thing or things in your life that may or may not be sinful that are sucking the energy and the life out of you. Whatever that is today, just name it, write it down, think about it. What's taking it out? Because God doesn't desire anybody to live there, anybody to be there. Because God wants us to grow. God wants us to produce fruit. The green-thumbed gardener is saying, let me help you prune your life. Let me help you remove this. Let me help you get this out of your life so you can produce fruit. Verse 2 of John 15, Jesus said, the master gardener, God, cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches so they do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. It feels good to bear fruit. It feels good to know, hey, fruitfulness is in my life. It feels good to be over here where fruit is just flowing. Life is just sweet. Things are just great. But just like that board that's on the wall that represent the growth in my daughter's lives, 
It's the same thing for us spiritually. We start out at one place and all of a sudden we want to be over there, grown, mature, producing fruit and everything's just going great and we forget about there could be a journey that has to be taken here that might be a little bit painful, that might be a little bit uncomfortable, that may require me to have some discipline in my life. We just want it fast and want it now. Isn't that our culture? Faster, better, now? You don't have to wait anymore? Many years ago, many years ago, I taught a college class. And these freshmen would come in this college class, and I was just a, a lowly graduate student, but I had this whole section of this college class, and, and they came in, and the first thing most of them would ask, mostly athletes, no offense, they would say, what do I have to do to pass? Just, just let me know, well, what's the minimum I got to do? And some would say, well, I really need a B, so could you like, give me the B requirements for the class? And, and they would just want to know, what do I have to do to get the grade I want? What they were really saying is, I want to put in the minimum amount of effort, and I want to receive the maximum reward. And many people live their lives over here thinking, I want to hit the lottery spiritually. I want to hit the lottery relationally. I want to hit the lottery emotionally. But I don't want to have to put in a whole lot of effort. You know, that commitment stuff and all that, just oh, chill out. I just want the minimum input so I can have this fruitful life that appears to be happy. And I can read in the Bible, Galatians 5, all of these fruits of the Spirit. I want those in my life, but I just want to jump over there. And God says, that is not the way it happens. You have to live in my garden. You have to be with me if you want to grow. And sometimes that growth requires us to make decisions that are hard and go through things that may not be real comfortable, but ultimately... Ultimately, God promises we're going to produce more fruit when we do that. Ultimately, we can enjoy the sweet stuff in life. If we just understand God's desire is that we grow. Another response to the gardener is stay. Just stay. In John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Because apart from me... You can do nothing. What Jesus is saying is don't give up. Don't back out. When it gets tough, when that journey from not being fruitful to being fruitful feels difficult, when it feels like you can't take another step, when you feel like, God, why am I in this? Why is this happening? How could this be? Just remember you're on a journey and Jesus says, stay with me. Some translations say, abide in me, live in me, stay with me. And that journey from not being fruitful to being fruitful, while it might be difficult, stay with me and you will produce fruit. You will have those fruits, those results in your life if you just stay with me. Isaiah 40 verse 31 says, but those who wait upon the Lord will find new strength. You know, waiting is difficult. But he says, remain in me and you will find fruit you never thought possible. Your life will work in a way you never thought it could work. Just remain in me. Just stay. And sometimes waiting is so uncomfortable. And I look back over the last several years of my life when there were times I didn't want to wait and I was ready to jump, but something said, wait. And then I look back and think, oh, what I would have missed what I would have missed if I had not waited for God's timing, had I not waited for just the right time to take the leap, oh, what I would have missed. There have been many times in my life that I jumped and thought, oh, 
man, I wish I could do that one again. I wish I could go back up on the cliff and, and try that over because it, it didn't work because I didn't wait. There have been very, very few times in my life when I waited and regretted. So God says, remain in me. It may not be pleasant all the time. You may not feel it all the time, but stay with me through the pruning process, through the growth process, and your life is going to be more fruitful than you could have ever imagined. In the same breath, Jesus makes this promise of growth. He also gives us a warning. The promise is stay with me and you'll have the sweet life. But Jesus said, if you stray away from me, you're going to find yourself tired, worn out, disconnected, and ultimately fruitless. So the areas of my life where I feel the most disconnected, where I feel the most empty, maybe the areas where I just need to stay and listen and be in Christ, live in Him, think about my relationship with Him, and realize it's a growth process, but I just need to stay. And he says, if you remain in me, you're going to have the sweet stuff of life. Another way to respond to the gardener is trust. These disciples, when they heard Jesus talking about this vine, this garden, this branch, this fruit, when they heard that, they immediately knew what he was talking about. They wouldn't have had to think, gardener, what's he talking about? Vine, branches, fruit, what's he mean? Immediately, they would have gotten it. They would have known exactly what he was talking about. They would have understood that Jesus was trying to reveal this image of God to them and ultimately to us. He was trying to reveal this image of God, of a gardener who takes care of us. You know, it's got to be a tough job being the gardener because we don't always listen. We don't always get it right. We often mess up and life takes us down a path we never thought we would be on. But Jesus says, just trust, because when you produce fruit in your life, it brings joy to heaven. It brings joy to God. So what's the alternative? If I'm here and I'm not fruitful, what's the alternative? Well, the only alternative is to try to fix it yourself. And if you could fix it yourself, wouldn't you have already done that? I mean, if I could fix the things in my life myself, I would do it. That's the alternative. Try to do it yourself Or decide God provides the growth. God asks us to stay and let him prune us, grow us, show us the things that need to be removed from our life physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever. And God says, over all that, trust me because I am the master vine dresser. I'm the master gardener. And if you want to move from a life that's not productive to a life that's got more fruit than you can ever imagine, he says, trust me. So God as the green thumbed gardener desires that you grow, that you stay with him and that you trust him for results in your life that you wouldn't have otherwise.